Isaiah chapter 31. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. For thus says the Lord to me, as a lion or as a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill like birds hovering. So the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. May God now bless to us both the reading and the preaching of his word. Yogi Berra said it, and John Fogarty sang it. It feels like deja vu all over again, doesn't it? Judah, God's people, are at risk of being conquered by the Assyrians. And in fear, they're turning to Egypt for help. And in response, God sends his prophet to warn them, don't do it. If this chapter sounds like a repeat of the last, it's because it is. (laughs) Isaiah preached a lot of sermons on the same theme. And a theme this important, trust in God. It's worthy of the repeat treatment, isn't it? From chapters 28 to 33, there are six woes, curses connected to covenantal Warnings. This one that begins chapter 31 is the fifth out of the sixth. And the prophet has narrowed his focus from earlier in the book on the whole world in rebellion against God to Judah, God's covenant people. And through this series of woes, he calls out that their hard heartedness against him will be the cause of the judgment that's coming. You cannot overstate how significant this threat is. I don't think any one of us has lived under anything like this. It's not like just imagining that a foreign power is threatening our country. It's that that threat, the foreign power, is on the move and indisputably has the ability to follow through. It's the certain knowledge that soon, very soon, all of life will change in unimaginable ways. Everything you have, everything you're accustomed to, everything that makes your everyday just the everyday will be gone. And you'll be forced to leave your home for a new life, a refugee camp in a foreign land. Many in the Ukraine have experienced this in the past year. Many parts of the Middle East and Asia and South America in the past decades know all too well. 
It's what Africans sold by their tribal leaders into slavery in the 16th to 19th centuries experienced and what people sold into human trafficking still experience today. Now, it's not to say that you don't know what it's like to have your life upended. Many of you do, just in different ways. And Isaiah's question is, what do you do in those times? And if such a calamity were preventable, it's often not, but but if it were, if changing your path could prevent the outcome, how many times would you want God to warn you? Is there such thing as too many when God is trying to call his people back from the brink of disaster? I saw a comic strip where a lady was desperate to know the future, and so she went to a a fortune teller, and she pays the hefty sum to hear what her future holds. She has to know. And given the appearance of, of looking deep into the future, the fortune teller furrows her brow and strains to see things clearly. And then she's satisfied. She has an answer. She sees it. And she looks to the woman and says, you will make the same foolish mistakes you have made many times before. Worth every penny. Bingo. She nailed it. We need repetition because old habits die hard. And for Judah, trusting in someone other than God had become normal. The tense of these verbs at the beginning of the passage, these are not, this is not the way you'd write in Hebrew if you were talking about a one-time thing. The tense of these verbs describes a state of being. It's a, it's a, a clue from the, the syntax and the grammar. Those who go down, those who rely on, those who trust in, those who do not look to the Holy One of Israel, these are not first-timers. This is how they are. We understand the difference between someone who tells a lie and someone who is a liar. The people of Judah didn't fail to trust God this time. They are a people who do not trust God. They did not just go down to Egypt for help this time. They went down to Assyria last time and they'll go to someone other than God the next time. This is what they do Adversity comes. More properly here, God brings adversity. And Judah's habit, ignoring God's word, was to look in hopelessly and to look around fearfully. But as Isaiah plays on repeat again and again, that will never work. In response to adversity, when your life is being upended or the threat is present, you need to look out and you need to look up. Faith and hope. On the surface, all your problems seem earthly, material, tangible. But God tells us that there is more going on. 
What these troubles surface, what they reveal is a spiritual conflict. Will we trust God or not? And Egypt and the like cannot solve spiritual problems. What we need is not Egypt. It's God. That's why Isaiah 31 begins with a testimony to the power of God. It's a time of crisis. Life is being upended. And what Judah needs is not Egypt. It's God. They need to know God. The great theologian Jonathan Edwards once explained how everything we know, we know at two levels. First is the conceptual, factual knowledge that we have in our heads. We must have that to know anything. But... He added that there is also an important type of knowing that is a sense of the heart. To really know something, there must be an experiential component to it that touches our affections. God has made us to know him at both levels. The head, he's revealed himself in his word, who he is, the factual realities that we need to grasp are there in his word so that we can understand with our heads who God is. But he's also made us to know him experientially, to have felt and taken something away from those moments when God is with us, when God is for us, when God can be trusted above all others. And that the knowledge of God that comes from the sense of the heart, that is what gives you traction in adversity. That's where hope gets its power. Thus, as Edward considered these moments in Israel's history, he says it's easy to see what happened. Isaiah ministered in a day when people needed the courage of hope. Don't you need the courage of hope? When life is upended, when the threat is present, don't you need the courage of hope? How else will you move forward? Great trouble was on the horizon. But all Israel had was a theoretical knowledge of God. And when a theoretical knowledge of God meets a practical, real-life struggle, your beliefs will always lose the argument. In your own trials, there's a debate happening within you between what you believe in your head and what you feel. And ironically, when we act out of that feeling, which is usually fear, we often credit ourselves for doing what's logical. We're taking care of the future. We're covering all our bases. We're protecting ourselves from risk. Brothers and sisters, you're doing no such thing. We're acting out of fear. And so by definition, what we say we believe has lost the argument. We must know God. Now, if we don't know him with our heads through what he says about himself, then the only God we'll know is one of our own making, and that God can't do us any good. But if we only know God with our heads, if all we have is the scriptures in our brains we will not find our way back to him in times of trial and darkness. That's not enough to give us traction, to give us the hope of faith. 
Fear will win. Fear is always trying to convince us that the real threat to our security and satisfaction is that we won't get the outcome we want. Fear always wants to dial you in on a very particular outcome and make you believe that you might not get it and that you must get it no matter the cost. But that's not the real threat. The real threat in life is that seeking those outcomes, we will turn from God to other things to get them. And to make it worse, when we do it, we'll call it prudence. God helps those who help themselves, right? And look, it's true that there are practical things God calls us to do through which he will change our circumstances. The issue is not action versus inaction. Just let go and let God. No, the issue is trust and obedience versus going our own way. Some helps, like Judah turning to Egypt, are simply incompatible with following God. One teacher gives a great example. If you need money, it isn't wrong to get a job. But it is wrong to steal because you can work and trust God at the same time. But stealing is fundamentally incompatible with trusting God because stealing factors God out. And that's why amid Judah's fearful return to Egypt for help, Isaiah calls on them to turn to God instead. Verse 6, turn to him. From whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day, everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man. And a sword, not of man, shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror, and his officers depart. The standard in panic declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion, and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. God is not oblivious to the outcome that we want. He's not oblivious. It's not as if God is unaware of what it would look like for us to have blessing and joy in our lives. He just knows the way to get there. The call is straightforward. Turn to him. Turn away from the idols. And we think, oh, Isaiah, you're proposing a spiritual solution to a tangible problem. Don't you see the Assyrian army coming over the horizon? This is not a moment for prayer. It's a moment to do something. What does God say? The Assyrian army, they'll fall. They will fall. Not by the sword of man. I heard our friend Neil Stewart preach one time that if God is in our troubles, all of the Egypts of the world can't save us. If God brought the calamity in our life, there is no not God that can make it go away. But in our unbelief, we start with our own way of thinking. And what we should do instead is to start with what God says. We should look out. We should look up, not in and around. This stuff can't help us. Judah expects that they can find their own way out of this. A treaty with Egypt, that's what we need. 
But it's just like our efforts at safety and satisfaction. They won't work. And they won't work because all the trials in life are fundamentally spiritual. All of them. Judah's expectation that Egypt can save is because Judah doesn't understand the nature of the problem. They think that what they have at its core is an international military crisis. Let me ask you this. You all read the Bible or had the Bible read to you? All the prophets that God sent to Judah to tell them what was wrong, what was going on. Do you ever remember the verse that said Judah's problem is the size of their army? Or that their walls aren't strong enough? Or that they don't have enough treaties with other nations? That they're not looking far enough into the future, moving the pieces on the chessboard politically? Do you, do you remember any of those verses? They're not there. Because Judah's problem is that the judgment of a holy God is coming against them for unbelief. Yeah, Assyria has her purposes for Judah, to which Isaiah, understanding them fully, says, so what? It doesn't matter. What matters are God's purposes. If we spend our lives trying to thwart the purposes of the world, we will find ourselves at the end having gotten nowhere. Kids, did God tell Jonah, Jonah, you know what your problem is on this ship? It's a tropical storm. It's pretty windy out there. What about the woman at the well? Did he say to the woman at the well, you know, the problem is you're, you're the walk you have for water, it's just too far. It's too long. No. That's not how God speaks. Because God knows what we forget, that in every case, his concern the real purpose of the work that he's doing is a lack of faith that leads to a lack of obedience that leads to a lack of security and satisfaction in him. And we want a shortcut. We just want to get to the security and satisfaction and so we turn everywhere else and you can't get there from here. You got to go backwards. You want a life of security and satisfaction, then live a life of obedience. But if you try to start there, you will exhaust yourself and you'll end up in despair. So if you want a life of obedience, live a life of faith. That's how you get there from here. That's why Isaiah invites us in verse 7 to throw away our idols. A, a spiritual act that he says will have immensely practical consequences. We think the two aren't related. We think we need something more tangible, more practical to solve these problems in our lives. And Isaiah says, throw away your idols. That's what will make a difference. That's what will tangibly and visibly change your life. The things we're trying to fill up our lives with will not give us full lives unless they come first from the pursuit of God. And then once God fills us up with himself, we can live out of that fullness and we will find security and satisfaction through many of the things that he provides in an abundant life in him. Another author does a great job giving examples to make the point. He says, the richness and fullness of life come from what is spiritual, not earthly. Money, for example. 
Money can buy a house, but money can never make a home. Money can put food on the table, but it cannot put laughter and joy around that table. Money can fly you to Paris, but it can't kindle romance there. What money can do is make you an attractive target for thieves and lawsuits. There's no security in money. There is no life for us in any tangible thing. What makes for life comes not from this world, but from the grace of God. Therefore, a heart at one with God is the secret to life. To have God is to have all things. To trust him is to be saved. Now admit it. I mean, don't admit it out loud, but... How many of us winced to hear there is no security in money? How many of us thought, well, that's easy for you to say? If I just had a little more. That instinct, that habit, that reluctance to really believe God when the rubber meets the road, that is why Isaiah repeats himself and God repeats himself chapter after chapter. God always offers more than we're willing to settle from, settle for from the world. He offers redemption and newness of life in his son. Chapter 32, behold, a king will reign in righteousness. A king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable, for the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity, to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. I need a practical solution, I say to myself. I don't need prayer. I don't need some nebulous trust in God. I need something to really happen. I've got to take matters into my own hands And here God shows us what actually had to be done. Tangibly, practically, what had to be done. And we couldn't do it. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. God had to send a king who would bring new life to his people. And the habits pervasive among his people, wickedness, injustice, unbelief, those habits would die hard But under the rule of this king, they will die. The problem of our faithless hearts is that we don't really know God. Despite God revealing himself perfectly through his word, his people don't really know him. That's what's wrong in Judah. And so what does he do? He reveals himself fully. The perfect 
representation of his image, the king, the one he would send to reign in perfect righteousness. Then they would know God because God came to them and dwelt among them. When we roll our eyes, at least inwardly, at spiritual solutions to earthly problems, we're showing that we don't really know God yet. When we turn to get get rich, quick schemes, psychological wellness, self-protection at all cost, we're not seeing God. Sometimes in the New Testament, somebody would come to Jesus asking for help for a practical solution with a problem they're having. And when Jesus would offer them a spiritual solution instead, they'd respond with something like, you think you're better than Abraham? You think you're better than David? You see, they didn't think they needed preaching. They needed real help. But they were missing the obvious answer. Yes, he is greater than Abraham. He is greater than David. He's greater than every created thing. He's the one who rules this universe in righteousness. And following him is the answer to everything that ails us. He'll open our eyes, verse 3. Give us understanding, verse 4. Make us wise toward justice, verse 5. No longer fools, verse 6. Noble, verse 8. Do you really roll your eyes at those things? Or do you see and believe that the change we should really want in our lives is what God can work in us through the power of his Son? And he does this, Isaiah says, by the Spirit. But before he says that, he pauses, he interrupts himself to tell us to listen very carefully to what God is saying. And he does this because he knows the temptation to tune him out is strong. He knows most people don't remember what you said 75 to 80% of the way through your sermon. Verse 9, rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In a little more than a year, you will shudder, you complacent women, for the grape harvest fails. The fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare and tie sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. It's so easy to stop paying attention. It's so easy to think that we've heard it before. Isaiah uses the word complacency three times in the first three verses as if to say, are you listening to me? He's been picking on the men. Now he'll pick on the women of Judah. They've grown complacent. They're so happy with things as they are. They pay no attention to how things need to be. Now there's always the possibility that we stop listening not because things are good, but because they're bad. We convince ourselves that this is all there will ever be. We forget what we have to look forward to. We fail to believe that there is joy available to us even now. 
Hopelessness will always cause us to look in and around and deceive in those things wrongly. Hopelessness causes us to view ourselves wrongly because we do not see the power of God to change us. It will cause us to view eternity wrongly because we've lost sight of God's good promises. It'll cause us to view God wrongly because we aren't looking out and up at God at all. In hard times, there's a real danger of tuning God out because we convince ourselves that to listen is to simply set ourselves up for more disappointment. But the thing is, the temptation is no less when times are good. The women of Judah represent, as another wrote, the kind of happiness that will kill us, earthly contentment that has no longing for God. When our mindset is that things here are as good as they can be, we'll lack zeal for righteousness. But God's people live under the power of the king of righteousness who commands faithfulness. We should never settle for the treasures of this world as an end unto themselves. They should never convince us to take our eyes off faith in God because we've gained something we thought was worthwhile. In contentment, we stop listening to his word. That's why Isaiah says that's the solution. (laughs) What's the answer to complacency? He says, listen to his word. If this is where you find yourself, listen up. You need his word. And you need the spirit to bring new life to you through it. Verse 15, until the spirit is poured out upon us from on high. And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. You see, God's people are complacent. They're complacent in their injustice and in their folly. They're complacent and they tune out the word of God until when? Until the spirit is poured out upon us from on high. The redemption of God's son is applied to us through the illuminating and life-giving power of his spirit. These are God's answers to what ails us. This is what we will see if we look out and up. But I ask you, do you believe that this work of the Spirit of God is enough? Or is it too intangible to help with what's really going on in life? That's why Isaiah immediately connects it to the tangible. The wilderness becomes a fruitful field. Justice will dwell in the wilderness. The effect will be peace, he says. Secure dwellings. He knows what you're after. God is not blind to what you're trying to achieve. He's just telling you again and again that you're going about it the wrong way. The resolution to every problem you see in your life, every problem begins with a spiritual solution. God may use all kinds of visible, tangible means, but those will be the work of his plans, not yours. You want to change your marriage? Start with personal renewal by the Spirit of God. 
You want financial peace? Start with personal renewal by the Spirit of God. Sexual purity, contentment, and self-control. Victory over fear and anxiety. Children that are a blessing rather than a burden. Start with personal renewal by the Spirit of God. What God offers here is no small thing. Roll your eyes, outside or inside, all you like, but it is no trivial thing. Another man wrote, he's not talking about a little drop of the Spirit here and there to help with your plans. He's talking about God immersing us in a deluge of the Spirit, which began at Pentecost and continues to be poured out today. Christian, we're invited to come under the flow of this spirit by faith to be given new life in serving the king of righteousness. I know that you think you need something more. I think I need something more. We think the answer is in us. We think the answer is around us. But it's not. It's outside. And it's up. Isaiah concludes, and it will hail when the forest falls down and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. That's a good reminder because when God acts in power, which is what we're asking him to do, it's not comfortable. Scripture uses the metaphor of a refiner's fire. That's not pleasant. It's burning up the impurities so that what remains is pure. That doesn't feel good. Worse for me is Paul's metaphor of a race that we have to run, which I think, you know, I find terribly off-putting. There's the illustration of threshing, where the grain is violently assaulted to separate wheat from chaff. God doesn't promise comfort. He promises his son, the king of righteousness. He promises his spirit who can renew and sustain you in power. And he promises the outcome of blessed life with him. The happy are you of verse 20. Judah wants lives of ease. It's why they're complacent. That seems to them to require some very material, tangible things, some shortcuts, some compromises, some looking in and some looking around. But they weren't listening to God. If material ease, security and satisfaction in the world are the goal, you'll never find them. You'll never, never, never find them. You find them by security and satisfaction in him it's the intangible thing faith that produces the tangible abundant life eternal life and Egypt couldn't help them get there and neither can any Egypt help you but look out and look up and God will save his people